Welcome to Redesign, the podcast about and for people who are reimagining our future. I'm Carrie Norton, and I'm honored to be your co-pilot on the journey to transform systems and manifest the regenerative economy. My guest today is Imogen Rose Smith. Imogen is a journalist, consultant, investment advisor, podcast co-host, and co-founder of Combinate Capital. For over a decade, Imogen was a lead journalist at Institutional Investor Magazine. And from 2017 to 2019, she served as an investment fellow for the University of California Regents, one of the largest endowments in the country. During her fellowship, she was the ESG and Sustainable Investment Advisor to the Office of the Chief Investment Officer to the Regents. More recently, she has been working with the Maui County Council and others on efforts to make the Hawaiian Island a center for impact and sustainable investment. Okay, so um, why don't we start with, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today and the sort of the decision-making underlying some of the choices you've made uh, around your career. Well, yeah, I'm... I'm... <laughs> I'm not sure how much decision making was involved, to be honest with you. Um, that's, 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 it, it's it's fifty percent decision making and fifty percent necessity, right? So, um, yeah, I was a, a journalist for many years, mostly with um, Institutional Investor Magazine, which is sort of the the premier publication for the institutional asset management business. Um, so prior to that, I um, I did my undergraduate and my graduate degree in American studies, thought that I wanted to be an academic, moved to New York to do my graduate degree, loved New York, sort of started to hate academia, but wanted to stay in New York. So I started looking for jobs. Um, I'd always done journalism um, and then um, sort of fell into financial journalism, knowing absolutely like literally nothing about finance. Um, sort of learned by failing for a couple of years, but came to, and I was writing about, I, I was working for a publication called Money Management Letter, which covered the exciting world of defined benefit pension plans. Um, and I would call up like, you know, the large pension plans and find out what money managers they were looking for. And it would be like an exciting day if CalPERS was looking for a large cap growth manager. Um, and found that I really loved the sort of financial journalism and finance and the intersection in particular between sort of public policy finance and investment. So um, from that, I said, I started learning about ESG and sustainable investment early on as sort of early as 2002, when some of the large US public pension plans started looking very tentatively at green investing. Um, and I then sort of fast forward 10 years, I went to the first Robert F. Kennedy Compass Conference in Hyannisport. Um, and thought that was amazing because, you know, as, as a former American studies, you know, student, the fact that I was, you know, standing in Ethel Kennedy's house was amazing. Um, and so I read an article about sort of this idea that institutional asset owners were caring more about ESG, which at the time was sort of, was true-ish, but was kind of more based in hope than expectation. Um, and certainly the asset managers were not interested in ESG. Um, and from that, I started, um, I continued working for AI, but I started doing some consulting for the RFK Center and myself and two other women 
really ran that conference for three years. And that was great. I mean, there was, it was, I learned a lot about the, what was then sort of the nascent impact investment industry from putting those programs together and talking to people. And so then to my, I had spent also a number of years writing about the hedge fund industry. And to my mind, there was a lot of similarity between the early days of the hedge fund industry and what I was seeing in the impact in the ESG space. So I really wanted to um, move from sort of an observer role to a practitioner role um, and also try and sort of have the opportunity to shape the industry as it grew, particularly sort of as it became more institutional. So um, I did, I started a fellowship at the University of California. I did a three month fellowship at the beginning of 2016 and then um, that in August of 2017, I started a two-year fellowship working for the University of California in the office of the chief investment officer, basically helping to oversee um, their $120 billion investment portfolio and guide their ESG and sustainable investing strategies. Um, so did that for two years. Um, again, learned a lot um sort of it both reinforced things i knew and sort of changed my perspective and then that finished in 2019 and since then i've been sort of juggling many projects um and figuring out what i want to do next fantastic uh wow there's you know several 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 rabbit holes i could go down here um and pursue threads of conversations but i think um Given our time limitations, I, I'd love to uh, understand your perspective on, you know, given that you've been looking at these ESG issue, issues for so long, you know, you're a really early mover um, in writing about them, certainly from an institutional perspective, but really from any perspective. What does, um, you know, what does today how do you think about the shifts that have taken place in those intervening 18 years and, you know, sort of what it means for today? Um, and I'll stop there, but there's more that I want to ask you about, but how do you view that? So I think the, I think the game changer for ESG um, was has actually, you know, really been the carbon divestment movement, right? And, you know, I I have mixed views about Bill McKibben, um, who is the professor at Middlebury who wrote the, um, he's been a long time, he was a journalist for the New Yorker and um, a long time climate activist. And he wrote an article in, I'm going to call it 2008, but it could have been something else. Um, it's around that time. Um, called something like the new climate math. And basically it was an article in Rolling Stone magazine that sort of distilled the whole stranded asset conversation and discussed this idea that basically um, fossil fuel companies have more fossil fuels on their books than they can possibly burn if we are to stay, if, if the climate levels in the country are, are not going to rise above two degrees centigrade, two degrees being the the level at which stuff starts to go really bad. And so 
it sort of created this notion of sort of the stranded asset risk that that these companies have too much fossil fuels on their books and they can possibly burn. So economically, it doesn't make any sense. So Bill McKibben, using the work of people like the Carbon Tracker, wrote an article about this in, I think it was published in Rolling Stone, and I'm pretty sure it's 2008. Um, And it kicked off um, this whole movement, particularly with students pushing for fossil fuel divestment. And it was very much modeled on what had happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with the apartheid divestment movement. Um, And there's a guy called Bob Massey who wrote a really good, very long book on the apartheid divestment movement, who was kind of one of the thought leaders in putting together what the carbon divestment campaign should look like. Um, and it was supported by various groups such as the Wallace Global Fund and the Sierra Club. And that that was a real game changer for investment because there, there, there have, you know, since the Vietnam War, there have been divestment movements. Um, the South Africa apartheid movement being the, the largest and the most well-known and arguably the most successful. The difference was that what McKibben did with his article and tying it to the divestment campaign was he tied it to the economics. Like there is a financial reason why, even if you're not necessarily going to divest from fossil fuel companies, you certainly need to be concerned about what is happening. So suddenly all of these investors who, you know, could ignore, for example, campaigns to divest from companies doing business in the Sudan were waking up to the fact that oh my god you know maybe I don't want to divest from Exxon but this is a real no climate change is a real problem and then add into that you know the 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 real manifestations of the impacts of climate change you know most recently sort of PG&E going bankrupt or you know the fires in Australia but even before that you know the droughts in in California and all of these manifestations made investors realize that there was actually something here. So I think that that was a bit that that's been a big shift. And actually the other big shift, and I was actually just doing some work on this, I think it was a I think there was sort of a post-2008 realization that um, finance had to change its ways. And you can kind of read that two way two ways. You can read it as a really sincere realization on the parts of, you know, individuals that you know, selling you know mortgages to people who couldn't afford it was probably a bad idea, and this wasn't what they wanted to do with their life, and they wanted or you know, making tons of money just basically doing financial arbitrage was kind of meaningless, and that they wanted to sort of use their powers for good. Um, but I also think that there is a there is, you know, some cynicism and there is a PR exercise there going on um, with the financial services industry, sort of trying to paint themselves in a better light. And on top of that, actually, the other part would be sort of the retail industry, right? And this recognition by individuals that they don't, that they want to invest with their values, that they don't want to be, you know, destroying the planet. And so that has been a huge push by individuals and stakeholders. And I think that has been transformative in a way that it hasn't really been in the past. Yeah. Okay. So I think one of the things that's coming up for me, as you mentioned, these, um, these key sort of movements or themes or levers even, um, is this idea that actually 
I mean, these things sometimes or often, uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a number of issues that are coming to what I'll call potential tipping points right now. Maybe not all of them, but but they're they're either borderline tipping points or they are actual tipping points, such as, um, you know, the fossil fuel divestment. You know, again, we could. It's much more nuanced than I'm making it sound, but like if it, whether it's fossil fuel divestment, or you know, um, individuals recognizing that they want to shape their purchases and their investments with their values. Or even to take sort of an unrelated, but somehow to me connected issue of like this awareness and recognition around what's happening with single use plastics. You know, these are issues that people have been working on in some cases for multiple decades, including, I mean, fossil fuel divestment that didn't, you know, Bill McKibben's not the first guy who talked about that. I mean, I, I remember hearing about that well before he put together that movement, um, you know, Swiss Re and other insurance companies have been talking about that for, you know, close to 30 years since the UN, you know, the first UN Sustainable Development Conference. Um, so what do you think it is, you know, both from a journalistic standpoint, in, in other words, what are the stories that are being told now that are, you know, or shifts in the way people are hearing stories that might be influencing these, these tipping points, uh, as I'll loosely call them? Or just is it just a matter of you know this stuff takes time, regardless of the facts that are presented? I can kind of take a surprise surprise, right? I can kind of take a glasses half full or a glasses half empty view on this, right? I, I think that uh, well, again, I, I think that there has there is a a big social movement that is saying we want our money, money to represent our values. And I think that the market and allocators are starting to respond to that. Um, so, you know, you see that, you know, the whole like, you know, millennial Greta climate phenomenon that we're seeing that is, that is a that, that is part of that is part of the broader discourse, right? So there there is a way that we are are much more attuned to these issues now than we were a decade ago, and there's this increasing realization that that finance does not stand separate from that, but is in fact integral to it. Um, you know, so, and I think that that. That is, that is in some ways starting to have, that's where I think the retail, I mean, again, there's, there's some really interesting statistics around how much in retail money has gone into ESG, ETFs, and mutual funds in the last year. Like it's escalated dramatically. So you're, you're, you're clearly starting to see people, individuals put their money where their mouth is. Um, and many of those same individuals are, starting to put pressure on their institutions, be that people saying, working for a company and saying, hey, I want a fossil fuel free ETF, or be that, you know, pension beneficiaries saying, no, I don't want you investing with private equity funds that are just going to come into my community and destroy jobs, right? And, and you're really seeing people and people are getting smarter and more educated. And people are starting to understand how capital works. Um, so, and, and 
you know, the market and investors are responding to that. And also, I also think that, you know, my, you know, my big realization, which is not a big realization a few years ago, was that, you know, institutions are made up of individuals. And so, you know, individuals, individuals working in investment offices or individuals working at banks are thinking, hey, I want to, I want to figure out, like, how can I invest in clean and renewables? Or how can I finance social impact bonds? Right? And they're starting to, like, think about these things. So I think that because because again they they want to be they want to go to work and be proud of what they do you know um the flip side is is i think that there is a lot of cynicism and a lot of marketing out there and i think that some of this is a, an effort to defend you know we, we are suffering from massive global inequality and, you know, it's very clear, you know, just in the US that there is a lot of social issues that, that are being exacerbated by a have and have not economy. Um, and there hasn't been sort of much of a post 2008 reckoning. And in fact, you know, the, the inequality has gotten worse. And it has in some ways been exacerbated by a shift away from the money managers to the asset allocators whereby instead of, you know, banks making a ton of money prop trading, it's asset managers making a ton of money catering to the institutional investor community. Um, and so I think there is consciously or not a desire to maintain and preserve the status quo um, and taking on ESG and sort of institutionalizing it um, and potentially sort of modifying if not neutering it is a way to do that particularly at a time when we have sort of a rising you know until now a, a rising stock market um and a move towards indexing and it's very hard for money managers to differentiate themselves from each other so i don't know if that was a, a you know garbled logic but that's kind of i feel like it's there's a duality going on here. That makes, no, that, well, it makes sense to me, uh, you know, uh, and we might get back to that question, but I want to circle back to, you know, this idea of, you know, when you, if you were sort of an early mover in the space and started writing about it, I, I'm curious about what motivated you to write about it in the first place. If, if very few people were writing about it, I, I want to, I want to, believe that there was something personal motivating you to notice um, that ESG uh, and write that ESG was going to become a thing and that you were going to write about it aspirationally. And then obviously, you know, you've stayed engaged and now become a shaper. And so I'm just curious, like what, what drives that for you? What, what motivates you? Um, And what, what was the first inspiration for that? I think, again, I think it's just, it interests me. It's just, you know, to me, these are, well, first of all, I think that it's important, right? I do think that, you know, I think it's important to have a moral compass. I think that issues like, you know, climate change, inequality, sexual harassment and discrimination matter. And I don't think that we leave those issues, you know, at home when we go to work. Um, and so, you know, I mean, again, I wrote about even, even before the, the climate change stuff. I mean, I remember writing stories about the 
the sexual harassment and discrimination scandals at the broker dealers um, that happened in the 80s and 90s and were kind of settled in the late 90s. Um, and, you know, for me, those kind of stories always stood out. And I think in part, you know, it's, it's sort of because of my liberal arts background and it's like that, that goes back to the world that I know and I'm most interested in. And so bringing that into the financial sector, I was kind of always on the lookout for like pretty much unconsciously, but always on the lookout. For that. Um, and I think again, like, but you know, as a journalist, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, as a journalist, like ESG stories are the most boring stories in the world, right? Sorry, that, that was, that was my dog shaking. You know, ESG, a lot of the times the way ESG stories are written is sort of very moralistic or very didactic and they're not interesting. Um, but I think this, as a journalist, the sector is very interesting and there are, you know, I like complicated stories. I like things that sort of make me think. And I think there's a lot of complexity to these issues, um, which is, again, one of the things that draws me to them. But I also think one of the things that makes it hard for finance because finance, in a way, doesn't do well with complexity, right? It likes stuff that's simple, that it can just commoditize and create, make into a product. And so it's always kind of just been this itch that's been a part of my worldview in a way. Fascinating. Um, so in that same vein, um, what... Well, so when you decided you wanted to move away from, you know, journalism as a full-time profession into being a shaper, like what motivated that? I mean, that sounds, it sounds like it was pretty conscious um, and pretty intentional. And why did you feel like your opportunity to contribute was going to, was going to be greater in that capacity than, you know, continuing to be a writer? Um, that's, I mean, there's a few answers to that. I mean, part of the, re honestly, part of the reason is, is that I'm very dyslexic, um, which means I can't spell. And so, you know, again, wanting to be an academic was a bad idea and wanting to be a journalist was also um, a little bit of a challenge. Um, and it meant that my career was in some ways always going to be limited. Um and so, and that was fine. I mean, I like, the thing I like about journalism is I like the reporting part of it. I, li I like being a journalist. I was never particularly interested in being an editor. Um, but it meant that my career options were always going to be limited. And then as the media, you know, the media industry has changed a lot in the last decade and it doesn't have as much space for long form journalism, which is the type of journalism that I like to do. So... You know, there was, so I was, I was looking to do something else. So there were sort of some push factors. Um, and then the flip side is, is I think that a lot of, and this is sort of something I learned at the UC Regents, like a lot of the skills that I have and a lot of things that I'm good at actually lend themselves to a kind of practitioner role. Um, so, you know, I like research, I like reporting, I like fixing problems, I like figuring stuff out. So, you know, I, I sort of found that there was more that I could do outside of the sort of the confines of pure journalism. And I, I kind of do think that, I mean, I think that's one of, you know, just, I was thinking about this actually earlier today, like, I think that 
there's almost like a need. One of the reasons that we're in this place that we're, space that place that we're in is is that there isn't enough breaking down of silos. The skill set that sort of you know a liberal arts major has is different from the skill set that like a finance major has. Um, and and we need kind of like we need more of both of those worlds. And so I think there's a real need to find ways to integrate them more. Um, so, but I mean, I can't say, I can't necessarily say I'm doing a good job, job of the transition. I'm very much still figuring it out. Well, I appreciate, first of all, you sharing that, um, story about some of the thinking that's gone into your transition. And I think it's really important for people to hear about, um, you know, I don't know how you view dyslexia, uh, or the impact that it's had on your, on your life, but, um, so I'm nervous to use a label around it, but, but clearly there have been some challenges. Um, and yet, I mean, when I think about the moxie and the leadership that, you know, however accidental it might've been that you demonstrated by going into an industry as a, you know, recent college grad that you knew nothing about in your own words, um, with dyslexia in, into an industry where, you know, that's a particularly, you know, reading and, and writing. And, you know, I mean, that's, you, you, you bumped up against, uh, those challenges so directly. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about where do you think that comes from for you? I mean, or do you even think about it? I think, yeah, I mean, I, I have, um, like, I mean, I think, I think, there's a lot that, <laughs> there's a lot that I get from being dyslexic you know there's be, being dyslexic means that you think differently like I I basically can't spell like I don't see individual letters um so I think very conceptually and I can kind of I can it's always easier like I'm terrible at learning foreign languages because I can't do the building blocks part but I'm pretty good at dealing with complex problems so there are I have great strengths and like very clear weaknesses um and you know i think part of it is so there's sort of a a, a willful blindness that is almost kind of baked into how i see the world um and then you know I, i've definitely had you know i mean i remember i remember having a professor who told me that wanting to be a dyslexic academic was like wanting to be a ballet dancer with a broken leg or a wooden leg sorry um, and I definitely had, you know, I had an editor who very much tried to bully me out of a job. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I've been lucky, you know, and I have been sort of lucky enough to, to blunder through and have enough resources and enough ways to sort of fall back, back plans that it never, it seems like more of an obstacle in retrospect than it ever did at the time except from the sort of now as I see the, the as I see the um, media industry change, changing, it's, be, it's become more of a challenge. And the other thing is, is, I mean, I think I sort of, again, I had enough, I have enough self-confidence that I don't really tend to, I don't tend to let how other people judge me, bother me, weirdly. I know, I think that's a very powerful skill. Um... But uh, yeah, I wanted to just kind of dig underneath to, to to hear a little bit more about how, like how, I mean, because plenty of people listening to this 
and plenty of people who are facing facing leadership challenges from wherever they sit um, will benefit from you know not only hearing how you sort of um, worked through some of your own obstacles, but also just the 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 willingness to confront challenges, um, and that's what you know. I a lot of us are using this language around courageous leadership. I think that's what's required, and I I actually really want to talk um, in this moment in particular about what kind of leadership do you think is required? But before I move on, I, I, I'm really interested in, you know, some of the lessons you learned having transitioned from your role as a journalist into your work with the UC system in the chief investment office, office because, you know, $120 billion is, you know, that's kind of move the needle kind of capital, you know, and um, what, tell us what you learned from that experience that is relevant from from any perspective. Well, I mean, I think okay, yes, 120 billion dollars is moved the needle cap, kind of capital. I'm not sure that it moves the needle, right? Um, I think the big thing I learned is that you know, first of all, I I really loved working with my investment teams. I had really great investment teams, and I love working with investment teams. And I think that there are some really great individuals at the UC trying to do really great and interesting things. That said, what I, I had not fully appreciated, you know, and it was naive of me, is just how political these organizations are. And I think that I, even, even the UC, which sort of is positioning itself as being very innovative around ESG, um, is very limited in what it can do. Um, and change, you know, I had thought because I'd spent so long writing about institutional asset management, um, that the, you know, the investment office is the most important part of the whole system. I don't really think that any longer. I think that, you know, and I think that the environment, the, the, the sort of ESG movement was really excited because the investment office started paying attention to them. And that's true, but I think that change isn't, true change is not going to come from the investment office because investment offices, by definition, are very conservative organizations. And so change is going to come from stakeholders both putting pressure on investment offices to act and from, and, and from stakeholders allowing the space for investment offices to act, right? So it was the fact that the students and the faculty and everyone else pushed the regents to divest from fossil fuels that resulted in the regents committing a billion dollars to clean and renewable assets, which resulted in, you know, the investment staff making decisions to make those kind of investments. Um, and that would not have happened without that level of stakeholder engagement. Um, so I think that that was, you know, institutional investors on their own will not move the needle because that is not what they are set up to do and it's kind of wrong to think about them as long-term asset owners because the individuals within those organizations have much shorter term time horizons and much shorter term pressures and i think as well you have to recognize just how extremely political these organizations are so those would be my my big takeaways 
All right. Well, so now you've touched on something that's a real passion of mine, which is, um, I mean, all of this is, but, 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 uh, but I have a particular fetish with this question around incentive design and, you know, both for the purposes of motiv- motivating people to make decisions um, on behalf of, of their constituents, but also, um, you know, in the context of internalizing externalities, which, you know, we're really, that's, that's the comeuppance that we're, we're, you know, in the middle of right now is this, you know, from, from a climate perspective, certainly um, we've been externalizing um, a lot of factors and also from a decision-making standpoint and a motivation and compensation standpoint, a lot of people in particularly in the financial services industry have been, have been incentivized to make decisions that do not correlate or do not, you know, align with, um, you know, even the most, progressive of investment policies, for example. Um, I'm making a gross generalization, of course, but but like, what do you think are some of the bigger levers that could be identified and used for more, more, for deeper transformation, for more profound transformation, for more rapid transformation of all of these systems that we're talking about. I mean, I think you you hit exactly on it, right? It's incentives, right? So, how do you how do you better incentivize people? How do you have a, a longer term time horizon so that it's not you know people aren't making decisions on a quarterly or annual basis? How do you, you know, how do you bake in stuff like diversity and inclusion into people's financial compensation, right? How do you, how do you deal with the asymmetry of the GP and the LP relationship in private equity right now, right? Um, how do you bake into sort of contracts and side letters, you know, respect for diversity, ESG, all, you know, some of it is like you know the boring plumbing of how we go about doing investing that has to change, um, and some of it is is compensation, it's governance, and it, it's thinking through and, and benchmarking, right? I mean, the, the the biggest issue is that you know everyone is benchmarking themselves to sort of a clique of endowments who perform in certain ways, and so if you're going to say no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to. I'm not advocating this, right? But if you say I'm going to take all my money out of fossil fuels and I'm going to radically transform my investment portfolio, you are likely going to underperform in certain market scenarios, right? It's like the difference between weather and climate, right? Like ultimately, your short-term performance is going to be influenced by stuff like the price of oil, even if over the long term, you are making a sensible bet on the clean energy transition. So you need to be, as an organization, you need to, you need to be protected from being judged against your peers who are doing something different. And we have basically none of that right now. So there's a, there's a huge governance change. There's a sort of a, you know, for all the, you know, CalPERS always gets in trouble for doing all this sort of governance stuff and having terrible governance itself. And it's true, right? Um, and so there's a huge governance shift that, you know, who, how are the boards of these pension funds put together? Who, who is making these decisions? Where does the power actually lie? All of that stuff needs to be addressed 
if you're going to see meaningful change. And you've seen it, I mean, the place you've obviously seen it a little bit is at foundations, you know. So if you have a foundation, Rockefeller Brothers Fund would be an obvious one. Heron is an obvious one. Foundations that have decided to sort of align. You know, Ford is an example of somebody that's having a terrible job with this, right? How do you, how do you if you're the Ford Foundation, how can you align your your mission with your investment portfolio and they're really struggling with it and again it comes down to governance conversation and this fear that like they're not going to make the money that they think they need to make and the other thing is is i think we need to have a much broader conversation about fiduciary duty because i think that fiduciary duty gets used as kind of a club to you know beat people over the head with and say oh well we can't do x y and z because of fiduciary duty so i think that there needs to be a much more sophisticated dialogue around that well, on that point, though, I mean, like, so let's play devil's advocate advocate here for a moment. What if you're somebody who, for example, is in a trade union and you have a pension and you want to make sure that you're protected in your retirement, that you're going to get the money that has been promised to you, that you've been working hard for 30 years to, um, to earn, um, and you see that the people who are managing that money are starting to make, you know, bets bets centered around the future that they see, which is, you know, divesting from fossil fuels, for example. Um, what's the art? You know, we hear this argument that like, well, we can't, you know, we can't just up the up our stakes and and, and transition so rapidly because it's going to be very disruptive and we're not going to get the returns that we're required to to get. So what's the challenge to that approach so that we can certainly, you know, we want to be able to protect people, uh, both, both the end receivers of those funds, but, and also the people who are managing the money, but, but, but how do we respond to that? Like how, how does, how does the industry respond to that in a more effective, meaningful way? So again, you're talking about someone who's talking to someone who spent a long time covering the defined benefit pension industry. I am secretly a pension nerd, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> if you're at a trade union, oh, you, you have no idea, right? So I'm not, not really an ESG expert. I'm a pension expert. Um, okay, so let's assume you're in North America, right? You're in a union. The question is, what kind of union, union are you in? Are you, are you in a trade union or are you in, say, the teachers' union? Because if you're in, like, the Teamsters, you got a lot more problems with your pension funds, right? Your pension fund is basically completely underfunded and you're concerned that you're not even having an investment conversation, right? Those guys are all having their benefits cut because there is no money in the pot. And the reforms that were put in place, um, mostly driven um, by someone called Josh Gottbaum, who is a hero for trying to push this through um you know have not have unfortunately not been able to address the problem so the trade union guys aren't sitting around there there is you know there are discussions around sort of private equity and stuff like that but those guys aren't sitting around being like oh we divested from fossil fuels they're sitting around being like wow we have to go and cut our benefits by you know 40 cents on the dollar because there is no money in the pot so and and the sort of what are called the Taft-Hartley pension funds, uh, funds are not really a large asset pool any longer. So put that aside, what you're really talking about is the, the sort of public pensions. So the, um, you know, I think the chairman of the board of CalPERS is now, um, 
you know, a fireman or a firefighter or a policeman, and he is very anti-ESG. And he says, you know, why are we messing around with all this stuff? The reality is, though, that, like, if you are a state pension plan, your benefit is guaranteed. So it actually, like, if you're a state pension plan, you can't, the pension plan cannot go bankrupt. So your pension is guaranteed. I used to have this discussion all the time with a friend of mine who worked for the University of California and was terrified that I had anything to do with his pension plan. And I'm like, you're, it, it's a guaranteed benefit. So it can't be changed. So it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters from a fiduciary standpoint, but from a beneficiary standpoint, you know, they could go and invest it all in, I don't know, Saudi Arabian bonds, and you'd still get the pension. As a taxpayer, you should be concerned. But as a t- pension beneficiary, that's really not not a concern to your pension benefit. It's different if you have a municipal pension plan, um, because again, you know, there have been examples of cities that have gone bankrupt. But again, the issue is you can't like the issue is a funding problem. You, we can't invest our way out of the funding hole that most of these pensions are in. They need more money in them, and benefits need to be reduced. It's got nothing to do with whether or not you're investing your portfolios in line with ESG values or not. There are issues, you know, and and what's really going to drive your return is not your individual decision to invest from fossil fuels. It's an asset allocation decision. So there are questions around private equity, and I have serious questions around. And what you've seen is one of the reasons you've seen such a massive push into private equity is because people are chasing returns, because they have, you know, underfunded liabilities they that they need to find returns where they can and so you've seen a move into private equity which in many respects goes against the values of a lot of these union beneficiaries and i think that is a really interesting tension and a really interesting question but the labor movement doesn't want to talk about it very much in part because they don't want to admit how badly underfunded the pension plans are um because they're they're afraid that their pensions will get taken away from them Okay, well, now I'm thinking I asked the wrong question because I'm using the wrong, um, uh, perhaps the wrong example, but but certainly that sounds like a podcast in and of itself. Um, uh, if your question is, is, okay, so you're a pension beneficiary and you think, and that there are, we had a lot of the beneficiaries at Regions said, you know, well, we don't want you to do ESG. You would think that it was very popular among some people, but there were other people who said, we don't want you to do this because it's going to take away money from us. Um and it, it's, you know, most of the academic research kind of shows it's a wash. Like, but you can clearly make the argument that over the long term, stuff like climate change is going to matter. And we're start, you know, ESG and sustainable investment is getting better. It's clear that these things are having impact. So it's not, there's a difference between values stuff and economic stuff, right? So I might choose to not want to do business with, um, companies that sell alcohol right um and that's pretty much a values-based investment that's no longer really the case with climate change and you can kind of make a case that says it's no longer really the case with stuff around gender and diversity so and this is one of those places that esg gets kind of squishy because they are kind of two different things and so there's a point at which you can say i don't really care if you believe in climate change or not you know firefighters pension plan it's real and the prudent the prudent you know, risk adverse approach is to take it seriously. Right. Well, so do you feel like that's a conversation that's getting traction? Uh, I mean, I, I sort of feel like I'm hearing the edges of that conversation, but I, uh, you would know better. No, 
because climate change is still considered a political issue, not a real issue, right? In the U.S., so you you are seeing you are seeing the sort of the ESG pushback, and you're you're seeing it. No, I mean that's unfair. You're seeing it in the fine like investment professionals are recognizing the impact of climate change, right? So again, the PG&E bankruptcy is a great example. Or like, you know, Houston, Texas is like, oh shit, we're going to be underwater, right? They like to call it, you know, extreme weather, not climate change, because, you know, they're in Texas. But they recognize that it's having an impact and they're recognizing that they have to do stuff about it. So, you know, it's sort of the, you are seeing it in the investment office, but you are not seeing it amongst those stakeholders who see climate change and some of these other ESG issues through an ideological lens. So it's still very polarized in that regard, which is different from like Europe where pretty much everyone's on board. Right. So, well, with that said, okay, so what do you make then of some of these more recent announcements, um, whether it be the Business Roundtable or Larry Fink or all these sort of, you know, announcements and developments within the last, call it six months. Uh, I don't remember when his first letter came out, but, you know, okay, even over the course of the last year where you've been seeing, uh, I, I don't know whether to call it signal or noise, right? And so I just wonder, like, what do you make of all of that? Um, is that just a response to the pressure, like you were saying before, uh, of, of a variety of stakeholders? Or is there an optimistic spin that we can put on what we're hearing? Yeah, the optimistic spin is that they are seeing pressure from allocators to care about ESG and they're responding to that, right? And that is that is very, very different from even two years ago, certainly five years ago and absolutely 10 years ago. So I think that... That is a change, and to a certain extent, um, there is hopefully no putting the genie back in the bottle. But I think the you know I am not. I am. I think a lot of this is this is what I was saying earlier. I think a lot of this is marketing and window dressing, and I think a lot of this is actually maintaining and preserving the state of status quo, rather than sort of radically changing what we do and how we think. So, you know, the the Larry Finks of this world would rather own ESG than, you know, democratize the financial services industry, which is part of what has to happen. Um, and again, I don't, some of that may be conscious, some of that may be unconscious, you know, it's, it's not because Larry Fink is a bad guy, um, but like, he's not he's he's no tom pettifee right like he's not trying to to address the ills of society he's just trying to say how do i how do i best play the game as you know one of the largest money managers in the world and especially at a time where you've just had like you know a rising bull market and there's no ability to differentiate one money manager from another you know saying that I'm a long-term asset owner, making you, you know, doing this is, it's, it's a way he can differentiate himself and it plays well in Davos, right? So that's my, that's my cynical glasses half full take. I, I think both can be true, but I worry that the, you know, that the, the latter is more true. All right. So if that, if that is true, um, you know, we've seen this movie before, uh, in any number of ways. I, 
you know, I kind of closely align what I fear in this industry, meaning more broadly the ESG impact industry, impact investing industry, um, which I hate to conflate those two in the first place. But, but you know, like what happened with sustainability and green was we saw all kinds of dilution and it has gotten us where we are today. And by the way, that has a lot to do with incentives, right? So, so what kind of leadership do you feel like, it, you know, is required to both safeguard the, you know, the real potential of this transformation that lies before us with all these different pressure points? Um, what kind of leadership is required? And from your own personal perspective, where do you see the greatest opportunities for leadership in the next decade? Um, you know, I think that I think I don't, maybe I don't think about it in terms of leadership exactly, right? I mean, I think that, you know, um, whatever, the, 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 you know, the efficient market is a wonderful thing. And I think that in some ways, this problem will take care of itself and that there will be a market correction and many people will be flushed out of the industry. And that will be bad and that a lot of investors will get spooked. But I think what will happen is, you know, the, the, the stronger actors will prevail. Um, so that that natural cycle, you know, I think of it kind of like, you know, Google coming out of the dot-com crash kind of a thing, right? Like that natural cycle will happen. I think that, you know, we do, you know, I, I always kind of say this, but I think we do need to see proof that people can really make money from ESG and or impact investing, right? And I'm not sure that like, you know, even, you know, whatever, like, you know, Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer both have made fossil, to have and continue to have made fossil fuel investments, right? So where, and you know, everybody just laughs at Jeremy Grantham and like thinks he's a crazy old man in the corner, right? Like the, the sort of, the, the the investment leaders of people who can say, hey, you know, this is the way to make money aren't there yet, right? And I think that is that is a huge problem. And either we have to change what it is that we value, um, and it's not just about getting the biggest bang for your buck, um, or, you know, we have to find those sort of climate billionaires. And, you know, I think Elon Musk is a fascinating character because, again, from so many ESG perspectives, he he is not a hero, and yet people love him. So I think that the, the, the Tesla question is really, really fascinating. But I don't, I mean, so I don't know if it is leadership so much as it is also transparency and accountability. I think we really need to, you know, look at... You know, we've seen all these divestment and announcements. Are investors really putting their money where their mouth is? Are they really doing what they say they're doing? You know, I, th I think we need better clarity and better transparency around that. And I think that there's a sort of um, a, um, what's the word? It's a, a, a mutual, like there's a mutual benefit to the environmental movement that can just take a win when like a new pension plan, plan says they divest. And the pension plan who's saying that they're divesting 
neither of them have much of a reason to interrogate or look deeply into what the funds are doing. And I think the real need is to have transparency and accountability around what money managers and asset owners and corporations are actually doing. And that's, that's hard to do. Well, uh, okay, um, maybe, but I mean, yes, it is hard. But I think what I want to believe is that a certain level of transparency is inevitable over this next decade. I mean, you know, uh, through what's happening with technology, through what's happening with citizen activism, through what's happening with, uh, you know, these these growing movements, um, shareholder activism, you know, all of it, it feels to me like there's, there's pro- there's pressure and momentum building. I mean, a lot of the things we've talked about today, even Greta, like, you know, the pressure is building from all sides. And so I feel like, you know, some greater level of accountability and transparency is inevitable and it, and, um, and that there's, you know, there's, there's some really powerful momentum there. Am I wrong? But that's kind of what I was saying. It's like on a higher level. Yes. You know, we're seeing, you know, what is, you know, fossil fuel free, I think that's it's like 14 trillion in dollar, trillion divested from fossil fuels. But like going deeper and really understand, like, is that is that really the case? You know, how are they divested? Or is it in some, you know, at the same time, like, you know, Saudi Aramco's IPO, right? Somebody's buying this stuff. Um, I don't think that people are necessarily asking i think they're starting to i mean i think you know the drawdown project is a good example of like people starting to ask some of the right questions and sort of follow the money more right um but on a high level that's still not happening again like we have yes we have the ability to have more transparency in government now than we've ever had but are are people really using it are they doing it are they asking the right questions i don't you know i don't know i want to close by um giving you an opportunity to talk about anything that we haven't covered including perhaps if you're interested the the work that you're doing in diversity and how that fits in with sort of your past your future and your view of the world Again, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm working on a couple of projects. The One of the main ones is um, creating a um, diversity-focused venture fund. Um, and the idea is, in effect, that um, diversity isn't, you know, diversity isn't venture capital's problem, it's, it's solution. And that, um, you know, you need better, basically diverse firms that have a lot of diversity can be more creative and innovative, um, but they're also much harder to manage. And so how do you measure and harness that? Um, And so what, you know, what we've been spending a lot of time on is sort of developing the tools and skills to do that, particularly sort of in the C-suite to encourage better and more innovative leadership. Um, so, and it's, it's, again, part of it is getting people to understand that this isn't a nice to have, but it's a need to have, and that we will, 
you know, companies will do better, society will do better, we will all do better when we bring sort of a multiplicity of voices and perspectives to the table and to the discussion. Um, but that that is not how Wall Street, and it's certainly not how venture capital has tended to think of itself, um, particularly over the past decade. Exciting. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about that as it emerges. Is there anything else you want to um, mention or plug as we find our way to the conclusion of this conversation? A lot of my recent thinking has been kind of influenced by, um, I've been working with some people in Hawaii um, around ESG and sustainable investment, and we just held um, our first conference talking about um, sustainability and sort of local Hawaiian ahupua'a values, which I can, a word I can now pronounce, um, which is basically this model of sustainability. It sort of means to the, um, from the mountain to the sea and the sort of circular, sustainability in a sort of circular economy um, and a more holistic way of looking at the world and also a more holistic way of looking at investing. And how can you bring those values to bear on communities and investment portfolios. Um, and again, we worked a lot on this idea of stakeholder engagement and sort of bringing multiple voices to the table to really affect, um, you know, the right type of change and encourage beneficial investments into communities. And to be fair, I think there is, you know, that was that was one example of this. As, as you well know, there's a lot of these kind of initiatives and these kind of efforts taking place often at a very, very grassroots and local level. Um, and I think those are those are the kinds of initiatives that give me hope um, and I think will be a much greater driver of change and innovation than, you know, the investment office of a $120 billion pension plan. Very powerful. Um, yeah, and I hate to end with this sort of cynical response, but but like, what do you make of that? Because, you know, I, I agree uh, and certainly have been, you know, witnessed to a number of these kinds of initiatives. But I'm curious, how do we how do we address the question of the obsession with scale? Once we, you know, if we're, if we're piloting these models, we're, you know, we're creating them on a very granular, circular, regenerative level, how does the regenerative, you know, future accommodate for, uh, you know, this obsession with scale? And how do you think about that? I feel like that could be a whole nother podcast. It should be a whole nother podcast in and of its own. I, I, I mean, I agree that is the prop that is a, if not the problem, um, and I think, you know, the impact investment industry has always had a problem where it just creates its own little snowflakes. So I think you have to create stuff that I think there's sort of, a, you have to work on a local and a macro level at the same time and design stuff at a small level that can also be scalable and replicable elsewhere. And so I think some of it is like, again, been working on this project on Maui, you know, how can that be, how can efforts that are taking place there inform like efforts that are taking place on the North Fork of Long Island, right? Like how can we have a dialogue so that we can learn from each other? And so it's not just a one-off, but it's actually, you know, so something like I think the B Corp movement is a great example of designing something that can then be implemented in a state-by-state level and is, you know, scalable. So I think it's coming up with not, not falling into the special snowflake model, um, and coming up with, but coming up with local models, because, you know, we all kind of have the same problems. They just look a little differently. So building in enough flexibility, but enough replicability and scalability. 
Great. Well, I hope you will come back and talk to me um, about scale on our next conversation and other things. And, and we'll be sure to be watching out for all the great developments in your work. Um, how can people follow you and find you in the meantime, if that's even possible? Um, I am on Twitter at Imogen NYC. That's a lot of pictures of dogs. Um, I actually have a website. It's just my name, ImogenRaysmith.com. Um, and I also do a podcast and some writing for Impact Alpha. So I'm pretty easy to find. Fantastic. Well, thank you again so much, Imogen. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time and I'm looking forward to more discussions around your leadership and um, leading the impact investing in ESG industry in the right direction. <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for listening to Redesign, to my conversation with Imogen Rose Smith. Through her work, Imogen provides sobering clarity to the investment field while emphasizing the need for inclusivity, equity, and justice. To learn more about Imogen, you can find her on Twitter, where her handle is at ImogenNYC, and that's spelled at I-M-O-G-E-N-N-Y-C.